0: Good morning, everybody. Super Bowl Sunday. If you know where I grew up, you don't have to guess who I'm going for. Let me give you a hint. For dinner, we're going to have clam chowder. That's all I'll say. Um, We're glad you're here. This is actually the last message in a series uh, we're doing on miracles. And we've looked at just a few over the past few weeks that Jesus uh, did. And Donnie and Darren brought some great insight into those uh, miracles some things like um, our discouragement. Our discouragement in faith can actually coexist. And that sometimes our circumstances are opportunities for God to work in our lives and to see his power. And that sometimes in the storm, there's more going on than what we can actually see. So if you've missed any of those weeks on the way out, you can get a CD at the info booth or we put them on weekly out on the website, the podcast and both the MP3. Um, Today we're going to look at uh, Jesus' first miracle, a transformation, turning water into wine. And when we do that, I want to have God's Word in your hand as we do that. So the ushers are coming down. If you do not have a Bible or you forgot yours, just go ahead and signal to them. They'll give you one. It is our gift to you. Uh, We believe strongly that He uses His Word to actually transform us. So we want you to walk out of here with a Bible today. We're going to be on page 711 in the Bibles that we just handed out. That's 711. Um, For those that have them, we're John 2, verses 1 through 11. Sometimes our view of what God should do in our life is actually too narrow. It's almost as if we we read this miracle today this way. There was a need. Mary says they ran out of wine. And then the outcome, uh, verse 10. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after that. The guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. You see, sometimes we have such a narrow view of what God should do in our circumstance that we we have a need and we have an outcome that we desire. Well, back in 2000, early 2000, I was doing a study on John 10, John 10.10 specifically, and it was about that verse that says, I have come to give you life, Jesus. I have come to give you life, to give it to you abundantly. And so, for some reason, that was on my heart for the year, to, to make that what God would work on me for some reason. And I didn't know why, because if you looked you know, at my life from the outside, I mean, I had great kids, a wonderful wife. An awesome job in the software industry. I was a Christ follower. So part of me was going, Lord, why, why are we even looking at this? But I read that word abundance, and you know, in my head, I understood it. But in my heart, I knew that I was missing something. And so I made a statement in 2000 to God, just kind of just like Mary. I said, um, I know, Lord, that you came to give life But inside, I'm feeling a little empty. And I know that I am missing something. Help me to understand more and to experience more of that life that you came to give. And so the year went on. And really, my study with him, my talking to him, went around that whole central theme of abundance. When I was in his word, when I was praying to him, that's what it was about. And then come August, I remember the day. I remember where we were. I was with my family, and I remember exactly what I said to my wife. I turned to her and I said, I need help. And this was the first time that I let her into a secret world of fear and anxiety that had gripped me since childhood, but that I never, ever let her or anybody else into. And so my request that whole year was about, give me life, help me to understand this. And now, just in August, months later, I found myself in a counselor's office And, you know, lacking joy and wondering, why did I ever pray that prayer? Look where it got me, you know? And this was not the answer I was expecting, Lord, the outcome, the path. No, this isn't what I was thinking. And maybe some of you are there today. I mean, maybe you've been there or you're in that spot. You've got a need and you've got a desired outcome of what you want. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe there was, you know, there was a time where it was good and now it just seems to be fizzling and you want that back or you just want to be happy or maybe you're lonely and even though you're surrounded by people inside, you still feel very lonely or your finances are out of control and they always have been tight but now they're overwhelming and you can't even see straight. Maybe that's your need and you know exactly what you want to get out of it. Well, today, as I prepared for this message, I really did reflect on that season in my life in 2000, and really reflected on how narrow a view, I can look back now, but how narrow a view I had. I I knew what the need was, and I knew the outcome that I wanted, you know, and, and it's like reading this miracle, just those two verses. But there's so much more that goes on between that need and outcome. And the truths, we, we looked at truths from the previous weeks when we were reading those miracles. The truths are common. And, and they're in here today in this miracle. They, they were influential in transforming me and they continually do so. And so I, I believe it can do it for you as well. So let, let's explore the miracle, uh, Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine. Um, John actually doesn't call him miracles. He calls them signs. In the other gospels, you know, we talked about the word dunamis, and it's translated miracle. It emphasizes power. Well, John uses this word um, semion, which means it's sign. So it's a sign. He uses that all the time. And signs have obvious truths, but they also have a deeper meaning. And we need to keep that in in check here as we go through this miracle. Now, Mary saw a need, and she made a statement to Jesus. He said, hey, they're out of wine. And to give you some context, I put the verses up there. It was a wedding. And when I read that, it bothers me because when somebody says they went to a wedding, what do you say? Who got married? Right? No idea. there, all we know is part of the guest list. That's it. We don't know who was getting married. That says something. But part of the guest list was Jesus, his mother, and the disciples. Now, at this point, not all the disciples were called yet. In chapter 1, you see that only four of them were Andrew, Simon, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And that's something key. But the need was they ran out of wine. And Mary saw that. Now you're going, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Rob. You're comparing running out of wine with what I'm going through in my life? I'm more like the dead man. I'm more like the blind. That's my need. I hear you. But the point of this miracle is not the magnitude of your problem. So just Bear with me, okay? We're going to get through this. The context is a wedding, and wedding's not like what we know a wedding. I mean, there was rituals and ceremonies that went on well in advance of the actual feast, and then the feast would actually go on for a week or so after. And wine was an influential part of that. And rabbis would say, without wine, there is no joy. Now, the deeper meaning in this is not, you know, there's joy in getting blitzed. That's not it, okay? That's, that's not what I'm saying. Matter of fact, that kind, in that culture, that was a disgrace. It's just that wine was part of offering hospitality. And a week-long festival, it required a lot. And, it, and for the groom, if you ran out, it was costly. Not only socially, but actually legal action could take place as well because the family failed to provide. So it was a problem, it was a crisis. And Mary recognized it and she made a very critical first step. She involved Jesus. And if you read this, I don't think it's that she was in a panic going, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? I don't think that at all. Because she, she knew the miraculous events surrounding Jesus' birth, right? She knew the miraculous events surrounding John the Baptist. She knew why he was coming, and that was to point to the Messiah. And if you read to the first chapter, you see that that all started to unfold. So she, when she told him, they've run out of wine, she came to him expecting him to do something. She brought him her life, her situation, and expected him to do something. Now, yes, in 2000, I turned to God and uh, made a statement. But the big difference, despite the obvious between Mary and I, is that she did it immediately. It took me years. It goes back to childhood, before I actually let someone in on that part of my life. But Mary knew that a transformation begins By involving God. And she did that. My question to you are are you letting God in to your life, to your circumstance, whatever that is? Maybe marriage, maybe finances, lonely, whatever the crisis, are you letting Him in on that? Because maybe step one for you is just to bring your life to God and just say, Here's what, He knows what's going on, but bring it to Him. That is a very critical step. And Mary involved. Jesus here. Look at the response. In verse 4, Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? And I read that with, whoa, buddy, you're setting up for conflict. You know, you respond, woman, just know that he addressed his mother from the cross that way. People at the time used the same term. and It actually was a term that was polite. So it was a way of addressing her. It was fine. And he says, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. And he said that a lot of times. My hour has not come, or the hour is upon us. And that's, he lived on a heavenly timetable. And he was making a statement to Mary here that my perspective is different, that he saw life not against the shifting background of time like perhaps she did, but he sees time as you know rooted in eternity. And so he was pausing and helping Mary see a different perspective here, or to help her know that I see from a different vantage point. Now in 2000, when I made that statement, God didn't say those exact same words to me, like, hey, I got a different perspective. But he set me on a path in August that was conveying that truth to me in a very loving way. The truth that a transformation requires a shift in perspective. That he was doing. I knew what I wanted. And then what I was going through was not it. And some of you may have the same thing. My marriage stinks. Make me happy again. I'm out of money. Give me a great paying job. Or, you know, um, I'm lonely. Just give me a friend. I've been there. But it requires, if we want him to transform, start to do something in us, it requires a shift in our perspective are we willing to see from a different vantage point? I know I struggled with that. I know I struggle with that. How about Mary? Look at verse five, this is right after, she says, they're out of wine. He says, I have a different perspective. What does she say then to the servants? She says, do whatever I tell you to do. No. She says, do whatever he tells you to do. He being Jesus. She didn't understand how he was going to rectify the situation at all. But she was willing to shift her perspective and trust that he would do the right thing. And maybe you're not sure how God can restore your marriage, how he can heal you from your illness, how he can make ends meet when the money's not coming in, or help you to feel loved when nobody is around you. But do you trust that he can do that? And are you willing to do whatever he tells you to do? I know in August of 2000, I saw no correlation of what I was doing in that counselor's office. I didn't see how that played into getting joy again in my life. But it took my wife and otherwise people around me to say, do whatever he tells you to do, Rob. Trust him. Will you trust him? And it wasn't only until I got to the end of myself that I started to see hope in my situation. I started to be able to trust and know that no matter the outcome, he will do the right thing for me. You see, when we come to the end of ourselves, we actually come to the beginning of God. And Mary was in that very place, and she gave orders to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now look at what happens after that, verses 6 or 8. Nearby stood six stone water jars, um, the kind used for the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the, waters, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the ma- master of the banquet. I could only imagine what those servants were thinking. They know, all right, Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do. And by the way, they're out of wine. Jesus is telling them, go get some water and put it in those jars. Well, first of all, it's not wine. You're telling me to put water in there. And by the way, those jars, they have a different purpose. They are not for drinking purposes. Uh, and you're telling us to put water in. And then not only that, take, draw out some and take it to the master to let him taste water. Yeah, that's going to work. <laughs> At least that's what I would be thinking if I was in the servant's place. But you remember that, that uh, John uses the word sign. There's some deeper meaning going on here. Those jars have a deeper meaning. Those jars to the Jews that were there at that wedding, those jars were meant, they were filled with water. And their system, their law, there was a ritual where before you ate, you would wash your hands in a certain way. When you came into a home, you would wash your feet. And that washing made you clean or unclean. And so Jesus was making a point here. This was not an obvious place for this miracle um, to be resolved from, but he was making a point that you look on the outside. You're looking on the outside to solve the problem, but you can do nothing about the inside. You cannot put joy in there. You cannot cleanse the inside. Only I can do that. And that was the meaning of those jars. And I, I think that to us today those jars also represent you and me you know that perhaps we're thinking just on the external but he's saying rob there's something on the inside that only i can do i can only do that cleansing are are you just looking at the external cuz i want to transform something inside something that only i can address And so maybe this morning in your need, maybe there is something deeper to it that he wants to address along with you. Maybe in your marriage, it is not just the spouse, the other person. Maybe there is something inside of you that he wants to take care of in the process of restoring your marriage. Maybe in your loneliness, maybe there's an attribute about you that moves people away and he wants to work on that. Maybe it's not an attribute. Maybe it's just that he wants to ground you so strong in the fact that he will never leave you, never forsake you, and that he's trying to help you realize that because he knows the world cannot uphold that promise whatsoever. Maybe there's a deeper meaning, and maybe it seems unlikely to you, like it was to me as I sat there wondering what what it had to do with. But I can tell you, a lot of times we look, we, we hope to see something because when we see it, then we will trust, right? I guarantee you, those servants, I don't think when they poured the water into those jars, I, didn't go, I don't think they went, ah, oh, look, it turned into wine. I'll gladly take that to the master. Nope. I think it happened in the process of being obedient. I think they poured it in. Uh, Maybe it happened when they scooped it. I don't think it was then either. I think they scooped out the water and they were like, oh man, this is not going to work. This is not going to work. And I think maybe when the master went, it turned to wine. I think that the transformation happens in the process of being obedient. That would be consistent with the rest of scripture. We'll take two examples. Go to the Old Testament. You know, when the Israelite nation was being taken to the promised land, they had to cross the Jordan. They had the Ark of the Covenant, and God told the priest, when you get there, go ahead to the river and put your foot in the water, and the waters will part, and you can lead the nation across the river. Little problem. The priests get there, what's going on with the river? Read it in Joshua. It's at flood stage. You know what they were thinking, just like these servants. Oh, yeah, this is... But they did it. Put their foot in, and the waters parted, and then they went across. Go to the New Testament when it was time to feed the 5,000, right? The disciples like, oh, Jesus, look, five loaves of bread. The math doesn't add up. 5,005. Feed them, he said. And in the process of feeding them out of those five loaves, what happened? They were fed and they had an abundance left over. I think the transformation happens in the process of us being obedient. Just like for them, And for us, it does come down to, are we willing to trust and obey, to cooperate with him? It's important to know that God is the one that makes that transformation, but he requires our cooperation. Those servants didn't change the water into wine. That's God's business. He just needed their cooperation. So the question to me and to you is, are you trying to do the transformation yourself? Is that something you're trying to do? Stop. Stop. God only wants your cooperation. And the servants did cooperate. Look what happened in verse 9 and 10. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Yes, on that day, a need was met. And did you read that he said he had no idea where the wine came from. So there's something more going on here. But the wine that was brought forth, the stuff that Jesus created was labeled the best. So at this time it looked like Jesus did a big thing on maybe a small occasion. And for me in 2000 he did a big thing. He transformed me and you know I'm different because of it and I am happy. But at the same time I struggle because I know, right, that Jesus didn't heal everybody when he was there on earth. And I know that just two years later, I made another statement to God. I said, Lord, my sister, 38, terminal colon cancer, please, two little kids, don't don't let her go now. Don't. I want to have a lifetime with her. Why did he meet my need in 2000 and then let that one go to me unmet? I struggle with that. I have to lean on verses like Proverbs 3. Five that says, "Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding." Or Isaiah 55, where he says, "Hey, my ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My way's higher than your ways. I have to lean on that. Do I struggle? Yes, but I also, in the face of the transformations that I see in my life and the lives of those around me, I know that it's real. And so I think verse 11 has something to do with godly transformation. It says, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. The important thing to note in that that miracle that John makes a point of recording is that yes, a need was met, but that was not it. It was to build up the faith of those disciples, those four disciples that had just gotten called by Jesus. He knew that they were about to take the good news to the world. And he knew what it would mean to them, the suffering, and that it would take great faith. And so he used that miracle to build their faith along with others. And so they witnessed it, we read about it, and it's for a very specific purpose. If you look at John chapter 20, verse 30, it says, John says, "'Jesus did many other miraculous signs "'in the presence of his disciples, "'which are not recorded in this book.'" But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You know, that transformation in in my life, that one little season, it increased my faith. It increased the faith of my wife and those, my co-workers at the time. It shaped where I am today and where I am going. And even though I struggled with my sister's death, I still know it was a short period of six months. She got diagnosed and she died. God met so many needs within the, those six months, you know? And he met him the same way he met him in 2000. It still required that I involve him, that I had to trust his perspective, that he had to make a transformation in me because what was going on in the inside was some serious pain and some hurt. But I had to cooperate with him and somehow that peace beyond understanding, that's the little divine dance you, that I, you, know, you and I do with God. That cooperation and him doing the the transformation. He what he did in 2000 prepared me to handle what was going to come in 2002. And perhaps, you know, I know that many of you have needs today, and you know exactly what you want. You know, it requires a transformation. But may I suggest that, you know, can you look beyond the need and the outcome, and are you willing to involve him? and have your faith grown in the process despite the outcome. Now, for some of you, that may mean you know, involving him, may mean talking to somebody, be it here in Theater 2 after a service, or somebody else that you know would give you wise, godly counsel. But for others of you, you know exactly what to do. You've been reading it in here. It's been touching your heart. You've had other people in your life who have given you the same advice that correlates to what you're reading, but for some reason you have not been willing. Are you willing to involve him in your life? God is faithful to his promises, that there is life in Christ and there is life abundantly. But sometimes that transformation does not come the way we expect. But I can guarantee you that it will fill your heart and it will satisfy your deepest desires. So my question is, are you willing to involve him and let him begin to transform you from the inside out to carry you forward? Let's pray. Father, I just, I thank you um, that you, you have patience. Um, so many times just in my own life, I'm looking for the big thing and the big time Um, But today's miracle, there was so much going on. You met a need, but in the process, there was other things going on. And Lord, that for us, we need to be willing to say, it's not about us. I need to shift my perspective and say, Lord, what do you want to do with me? What are you trying to do? You know, I want this certain thing. I'm willing to put that on hold, knowing that you'll do the right thing. Help me, help me take that step. Thank you for your patience in that whole process. We really do trust you knowing that um, in you there is life, and there is life to the full. We love you, Lord. It's in your Son's name I pray. Amen.